Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Secrets of a Self-Starter. My name is Mim Rizvi and in this podcast, we're going to introduce you to some of the country's brightest young businesswomen and wildly successful self-starters in a mentoring session. These young businesswomen pitch their way to seed capital funding and mentorship in a national competition led by the Accelerator for Enterprising Women. And today's mentor is Sarah Davidson. You might already know Sarah Davidson. She is a regular feature on most TikTok For You pages. She is the type of woman that makes you feel like anything is possible. She is fun, smart, and incredibly generous with her advice. She has also built her own highly successful retail brand, Matcha Maiden, and Seize the Yay. Our mentee, Alana, is also working in the digital product space with her own brand of sustainably made swimwear called El Adrift, with bathers, bikinis, and soon boardies made from recycled fishing nets and industrial waste. She's determined to change the way things are made and look amazing while doing it. That's enough from me, though. Let's jump in and hear from Alana and Sarah Davidson. I'm Sarah Davidson, a lawyer turned entrepreneur. That's the best way to describe what I do because there are so many elements to it. I'm a podcaster, a presenter, an author, a speaker, a dog mum, most importantly, first and foremost, a golden retriever mother. And there are many fun facts about me. I am a walking fun fact, but I think probably the sort of one that stands out the most is I was adopted from South Korea. Wow, that's amazing. And a walking fun fact. I love that. I'm going to consider that stolen. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I'm a walking fun fact. I just am. (laughs) Don't ask me. Just Yeah, don't ask me to elaborate. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Elle Pierce. I'm the creator of Ella Drift, which is a sustainable swimwear brand. It's a little baby brand. It's just been a year and a half now, but on its way up into the world. And um, what's a fun fact about me? Probably that I'm a twin. I'd say that's that's a bit of a fun fact. Yeah, yeah. And I also I'm a soon to be golden retriever mum. Yep. <gasps> yeah. In like four months. Stop yeah. It. We're counting down the days. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're obviously best friends already <laughs> yeah. because golden retriever motherhood is a bond makes us related. That cannot be broken. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so cute. I'm getting seen pics. Oh my gosh! Oh. Please send me photos. Absolutely. Oh, yep, I need photos back. I want all all the golden retriever photos possible, please. <laughs> Amazing. Well, they those were lovely intros. So we might crack into the core of the episode now. So Sarah and Elle, welcome to Secrets of a Self Starter. You've just heard a little bit about each other. And I'm sure that you're bursting with questions already, Elle. But before we jump into the first one, Sarah, we always ask our guest, did you have a mentor when you first started out? And if you did, what was the best piece of advice you got from them? That's such a great question because I think there's a real misconception out there. And often when you do tell your story, you tend to focus on your part of the story, but no one got there alone. Everyone has a massive team of helpers and colleagues and business partners sort of behind them. And I think mentors are usually one of the biggest parts of the story. I think coming from a corporate background, one of the things that I did 
in the very early days was seek out the simplicity of one single mentor. I was looking for that one person because in a corporate context, you have that. You have your immediate superior or at least a couple of immediate superiors that you always ask them. You kind of don't go past your team. And I, I think I I missed out a lot in those early days because I was like, I just want one person to be my go-to for everything. And the best thing that ever happened was actually not from the people who ended up being my mentors, but was from someone else watching me go through this search saying, actually, you might end up sort of having a team of mentors or a family Mm. of mentors. You'll have someone you go to for finance advice. You might have someone who you go to for the self-doubt burnout piece. You might go to someone else completely for the scale up. It's not, Mm. you know, that it's so simple to look for one single person who'll guide you the whole way through. But most of the time, everyone's too busy to sort of take on that formal (laughs) mentorship role anyway. So you end up more building an army of mentors. And that's definitely something that once I had that realization that there wasn't the one necessarily, Mm. built out a really great team of particularly people who had done exactly the same thing. So ex-lawyers turned business people who could guide me through that initial phase. And then once I did make the jump, I was like, oh, I don't necessarily need only ex-lawyers now. I can expand out to other business people. But yeah, I've always had five or six, I would say, people who were kind of on speed dial. Oh, wow. That's (laughs) a great piece of advice. And I think that's something that we live in our normal life. Like we don't try and get every piece of emotional help that we need from one person. We ask our mum, we ask our dad, our partner, our friends. So why wouldn't it be the same in business? So I love that. Totally. Well, (laughs) hopefully joining Elle's army of mentors is yourself after today. So I'll throw to you now, Elle, do you want to jump off with your questions and let's get into it? Yeah, absolutely. So Sarah, your overarching life philosophy is seize the yay. What does that mean to you and how do you stay motivated to seize the day each day? That's a great question, (laughs) particularly because the last week I haven't necessarily been as motivated as usual. Um, As to the first part of the question, the seize the yay philosophy is just a word play or a pun uh, tweak to seize the day and the idea that, you know, you're always going out to seek new opportunities and make the most out of life. And I think I started out very much with that philosophy. For a little bit of background, you probably know this, but not just being adopted, but also leaving one career to jump to another. I've always had this really intense feeling of make the most of everything you have. And I think that's a great trait, but sometimes you end up chasing success and chasing productivity and chasing being busy so hard that you end up kind of steering so far away from purpose or from joy or from fulfillment. And in my corporate career, that definitely happened. I I don't regret it. I never hated it. I had an amazing time in law, but I definitely was climbing this ladder so vigorously and seizing the day, but like seizing every second, every day that I was always burnt out. I had made no room for any other parts of my personality. And I think this hustle culture that we have today is amazing, but it does mean that we really glorify being busy. We glorify Mm -hmm. achieving all the time. There's no downtime. There's no like pauses to just stop and go, am I happy? Do I care about the ladder? Is the ladder that I'm climbing even up against a wall that I want to be at the top of? And so Seize the Yay is uh, came out of this big revelation that money, of course, is important. There are realities of bills and, you know, you've got to kind of feed yourself and, you know, a lot of people have dependents. So it's not that money isn't important and that success isn't important, but it's not 
the the whole question. It's not the whole picture and it's not the only thing that you should be sort of aspiring to. There has to be some room for questions about am I fulfilled? Is this using the things that light me up? Does this give me any sense of satisfaction outside of what financially this job or pathway is doing for me? So whether that's the big things like changing my entire job and career and pathway or more day-to-day coming back to the second part of the question, whether it's little things like lighting candles, even though it costs like $7 every time you light a candle, (laughs) like making room for those tiny rituals, the daily rituals. Do I give myself a chance to read a chapter of a true crime book, even though that's got nothing to do with my job? Like, do I take Sundays off? Do I put my phone away, even though I could get 12 solid hours of engagement on a Sunday? You know, do I prioritize joy over productivity um, and putting joy first? Yeah. And letting everything else fall. That's into such place. a hard balance to strike when you're a small business owner too, because the buck stops with you and you feel pressure to take on all those things and be the most productive version of yourself constantly. Totally. And I definitely did that. Even once I moved into business, I was like, oh, I'm Susan Yeo now. I've left floor, I've left corporate. And then I just did the exact same thing in the business. I worked yeah. 120% and had no joy or hobbies outside of it. And then ended up resenting the business that I'd created for the joy. So Mm. it's definitely something you've got to make time to stop and think, like, am I getting on this productivity hamster wheel? Do I need to be at 120% all the time? Most of the time, no. (laughs) That's so true. And you see people when they wear their hustle like a, a proud badge, thinking that it's like, you know, so wonderful to be tired and and you just wonder, are you happy as well? Are you content? Do you get to have those little moments in the day that you're mentioning? Because so many people have an idea of what a great job would be or, you know, a great lifestyle. But when you actually think about what you're doing in that role on the day-to-day, is it things you enjoy? And like you say, is it going to challenge you? Is it going to fuel your passions? And I think so many people don't actually mm-hmm. stop and think about it. It's it's sad, but it's yeah, that's yeah. why it's so good to talk about because people realise, hey, maybe I'm not utilising all my strengths that I actually could be. Maybe I do have a different pathway. How did you know that you were on the right path when you did make that massive change from being a lawyer to a entrepreneur? <laughs> I love that question because I think it's one that comes up so often and younger me would ask that question a lot of the time because I was like, how do you know? what is the one pathway? I have this such a linear view of what people's lives were supposed to look like. I really thought that there was this one path, which definitely for our parents and other generations, they might have had one single path for their whole lifetime. It was much more common. But the world in this day and age is moving so quickly. You're not actually expected to make one choice. Mm -hmm. Like nothing, nothing needs to last forever. You're expected to have nine to 12 careers. So firstly, just by being alive in this day and age, that the whole forever choice thing, the pressure's kind of off, which is awesome. But I think also I love quotes. Most of the time I've got a quote for every scenario. I, I know they're super cheesy and cliche, but I love them so much. <laughs> so my quote for this question is, you don't have to see the whole staircase. You just have to take the first step. So actually you don't really need to worry, am I on the right pathway? You don't worry about the entire pathway. You don't worry about the top of the staircase Now I don't even worry about what the next five steps are going to look like. All I think about is the one I'm in and the immediate next one because by the time you get to the next step, the whole pathway has probably changed anyway. Mm. Like that's how fast things are moving, that you don't need to waste stress and fear and concern and doubt about 
the end goal. You just need to be taking one foot in front of the other. So looking back, I, I know how much pressure that I put on myself to think, am I leaving my, like, I'm leaving law forever. I'm going to be a business person forever. I'm going to run this tea business forever. Like, is this the right thing? And now looking back, I'm like, oh, that was just the, the first step in the next chapter. There's been six or seven steps since then. There'll probably be 60 more in my lifetime. Mm. I didn't need to worry about that. So I kind of have gone away from a career where I knew the end destination. I knew where I'd be for 50 years of my life to now I don't really bother about that question too much. I'm sort of like I am on the right pathway because whatever pathway I've chosen is either going to push me closer to what I want or teach me like what I don't want Mm. and is going to course correct me. Each step up the staircase is going to fix and get me closer towards the yay, as I call it. And so like the best way I can describe it is once upon a time I thought my ideal pathway was like this static picture at the end of the road that would look like a painting on the wall. And once I had that painting, it'd stay like that forever and I'd pat myself on the back and live like that for the rest of my life. Now I've realised it's just a jigsaw. Every new experience, you add pieces that you are missing that you need more of and you get rid of ones that don't suit you anymore and it's constantly evolving. So there is no right pathway. There's just a big messy jigsaw and every step is more or less pieces depending on, you know, what stage you're at in your life. That's so right. I love the the staircase analogy because that's literally the sort of the reason when I started Ella Drift, I was like, oh, what the heck? I'll just do the first part. I'll just get some samples or just find a manufacturer. I'll go from there. I'll build some designs. And it doesn't have to mean that, you know, in six months' time I've sold a certain amount of pieces or the website's up and running in two weeks. All I have to do is this first step. And it really takes the pressure off, doesn't it? Because you go, oh, that's all. You know, oh, I spend this five minutes of emails or researching into it. And it just really releases that pressure. And I was very similar in that way you say about the course correcting of going, well, at the end of the day, if you try it and it's not right, at least you know. And so there's never even really any regrets because you're constantly just learning what you are passionate about, what you do thrive on and what what isn't good for you. So there's really no loss, is there? Like that's and like you said before, mm, Mim, about totally. it being, you know, in your personal life as well. That's that's all life is, is just working out what works, <laughs> what works well and what keeps us happy. Absolutely. I feel like when you do have that attitude towards, a, you know, what other people might call a failure or a setback or when something doesn't work, it's so much easier to bounce back from it when you just think of it as like, oh, okay, well, that'll save me from going further down that path. Like the, the sooner you know that something's not working, the better. So I think if you get really bogged down in, oh my God, it was a backward step or even a sideways step, like I'm wasting time, then, you know, you'll, you'll waste so much energy sitting in that place of I failed and like, what does this mean? Whereas if you just go straight to that approach of like, what did it teach me and how can I move forward? Then really not much bothers you because you're sort of like, it's all part of the journey. And it's maybe a little bit simplistic because of course some setbacks do involve losses of money or big risks. and But I think for, at least from a, an emotional perspective, that's always helped me like dust myself off and get back up pretty quickly. Mm. Sarah, someone that you know said this to me the other day, um, Claire and Georgia from Ellen Rowe, they were <gasps> saying that when they took the leap to go and start their jewellery business, they were like, well, if this doesn't work, I can just go back to my old job. I'll just go back to it. It's not like I've lost all my skills and I'm suddenly unemployable. So I'll have a go. If it doesn't work, that's fine. My new favourite question to ask anybody when they're sort of in that throes of self-doubt of is this the right pathway or have I made the wrong decision or, you know, 
one setback's happened, does that mean I should go back to my other job because I suck at business or whatever? Is if I told you that you could fail or stumble or, you know, make a big mistake and nobody would ever find out, mm. no one that you know would ever know that that happened, would you be scared of the failure? Yeah. And when I ask myself that question, most of the time I'm like, oh my God, no, I wouldn't care. I'd be like, oh, cool. I tried horse riding. I fell off. I broke my leg. Now I know I'm not going to be a good horse rider, <laughs> but I don't think I'm a lesser person because I'm not, because I didn't, you know, that didn't go well. I'll just try something else. Mm. So I realize actually me and most people are more scared of looking silly. Yeah than we are about the actual failure. We know that failing in one thing doesn't mean we can't do everything else. Mm. We just don't want other people to see it. And once you realise it's a perception thing, you're like, nothing's that scary. I'm just scared of being judged. But who actually cares? Yeah, everyone's too bothered on themselves. Yeah, totally. I don't even notice what everyone else is doing. You're so bogged down in your own head that no one's, like, looking. And even if they are, 25 seconds later, they've scrolled onto something else. Mm. That's so true. It's it's hard to sort of, when you are starting out, you were talking about the way you can correct your pathway and knowing you were on the right, I guess, journey more so than path. Do you have any certain sort of skills that you think entrepreneurs should really hone in and focus on to get where they want to be, to get sort of, I guess, to your your position, what you're doing? Yeah, I think... Uh kind of have touched on it. I think probably the most valuable thing that I've learned has been my strategy, not when things are going well, but the strategy when things aren't going well, because I think that's where you stumble. It's sort of easy to keep momentum when you're getting really good results, when all your hard work is, you know, fruitful and it's going how you had hoped or better than you'd hoped. What really makes or breaks a business person and their experience of business as well is what happens when like the shit hits the fan and then suddenly you know, if you really let it affect you, it can topple you for weeks or months or sometimes in some cases, if it really got to you, it might lead you to close the business or decide that you shouldn't launch a new product or, you know, there are so many stories out there of people who have hugely successful businesses now who it's like the 10th product that they tried. They had nine before Mm. and if they'd thought any one of those experiences was because they weren't worthy rather than just bad timing or the product not working, they wouldn't have known the thing that ended up being their, you know, their one idea that looks like an overnight success. So I think the best skill you can you can develop as a business owner is a thick skin and a real ability to bounce back because everything else you can figure out. Every every skill that you need, you can either do a course or you can get some mentoring or you can YouTube or you can practice or you can get qualified. Like in terms of the actual logistics of what you need to do as a business owner, that is never what trips anyone up. No one ever doesn't go through with a business because they can't read zero. Mm. Like they just get someone to, they look at zero help or they get someone to teach them or they get an accountant. They outsource it. Like it's not the doing of the business. Mm. It's like the mental game around keeping going. So I think it's, yeah, that uh, yeah that ability to bounce back uh, and sort of master your self-doubt in the moments where the imposter syndrome does get really bad, uh, the ability to ask for help mm. and knowing when you're having a doubtful moment that you don't have to do that alone, like you can phone a friend and you can outsource and I think also knowing where your strengths and weaknesses are because there will be areas where it's really important for you to upskill, like understanding your books or reading your 
uh, like anything about the numbers I didn't engage with for so long and I probably needed to do that a bit earlier. Then there are areas where you never, it doesn't matter if you ever can upskill or not because you're always going to outsource that. Like I feel like knowing your strengths and weaknesses, where your gaps are, where you can get help, where you should get help and where you don't need help, like all of that kind of thing I think is a really important skill. And then uh, I think, yeah, I think the people part, networking and building really good connections because you look at the skills you need as a business owner and, of course, there's like sales, there's marketing, there's like technical skills. But that's, again, I don't really worry about most people learning those things. They'll learn them anyway. But learning how to develop good, deep relationships where people will trust you and where you'll help each other out, where you'll share confidential information, where you'll share vulnerabilities, uh, where you'll you'll be working together across like there's a lot of uh, we've now sold two of our businesses and we still in the new ones work with the same suppliers because the relationship's so good. You know, there's I think the relationships last much longer than your one product idea or your service idea or your first business or your second business. So the ability to develop good relationships and keep them and nurture them and get the most out of them and give the most to them is also another really important skill. Yeah, I love that. And especially in terms of doubt, it is really to, really easy to have those sort of doubtful moments. And especially when it's just you starting your business, you would have felt that, you know, before and having that community and being able to be vulnerable with them, because I've got really little community, obviously, right now with Ella Drift, but just having people reply back and give me feedback on things makes me feel so good when I'm having doubts about things and I go, oh, you love that too? Great. It's not just, you know, me who likes the idea of this new product or this new design. And once again, it's like it's a way of outsourcing, as you say, and you're getting ideas and you're bouncing ideas and passion off people and you always end up feeling better after it because when it's all inside your own head, it's so much harder to work through and sort of unscramble. And there's sometimes you think involving people doesn't (laughs) help, but it always does, doesn't it? Always, always. Things are so amplified. The way I look at it and the phrase that's like become a really big buzzword but still always helps me is echo chamber. Like if you're having self-doubt and you can't break the circuit, then all that's going to go round and round in your head, your head becomes an echo chamber and they're just going to amplify in there. Mm. You need sometimes someone else to come and be like, dude, and just throw a different thought in there or throw some kind of reassurance to be like, stop just bouncing your own thoughts inside your own brain. <laughs> like, get out of your head. <laughs> so true. It's so true. Do you ever feel like you have a lot of responsibility in terms of, obviously, with Matcha Maiden as your first business that was product-based, Do you ever feel as though people forget how much actually goes into it and it feels like it weighs heavy on your shoulders responsibility-wise? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you underestimate that before you go into a product business because what you see as a consumer or what you see as someone who's not in business and just experiencing someone's business journey from the outside, you just see the finished product. You don't see that there's literally 8,000 million steps that have to happen before that product can hit the shelf, you know? Yeah. So many layers. It is so multifaceted. You've got so many things in the supply chain before it can be sold. Then there's, you're wearing every single hat in your business. And when it is only you, it does, it weighs so heavily because you're, you know, in a corporation, there's a person for each role, whereas you're doing all of those roles. And probably most of them you're not qualified for and you've never done before. And the things you're best at and you enjoy most are not the things that you get to spend the most time in. Mm. It's a really 
it, it's so overwhelming. And it's also like, there's only so many hours in the day. Like, which department am I going to focus on? Yeah, what today? hat do you put on each night? So, <laughs> yeah. And like, sometimes you're wearing six at once and you're doing a terrible job at all of them. Like, it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. And I think um, when you do have an external community as well, it's hard that they're like, once you open your online store, you can't control when someone buys something. Like if they buy it and you've said, I'll ship it within one to two days, you really don't have a choice. Like it's sort of, you've created this monster that then lives by itself and you've got to, you know, pander to its demands and fit in everything else. So I definitely understand that feeling of the responsibility of it all weighing on you. I think um, one of the really important things that helps me, helped me a lot during Matcha Maiden and still does, is the perspective that you lose when you're so inside the business. Sometimes you do need to just shock yourself out a little bit. And one thing that really helps me, and this sounds so silly, but I always have to remind myself, I am not a paramedic and I'm not a heart surgeon Mm. and I'm not a fireman. So most things that I think are urgent are not really urgent. Like if someone didn't get their matcha within two days and got it within three days, like the universe is fine. No one's dying. The time elasticity that I have compared to a heart surgeon, I've got time. Like Mm. nothing can't wait till tomorrow. No customer is not going to understand with a small business that it's like half a day longer because you needed to eat that day. Like I feel like getting perspective on what's actually important and what actually is earth shattering and what isn't. Give yourself a bit of a reality check that yes, it's my customers are important, but they're not at what cost. Like sometimes you do have to pace yourself a little bit. And the other thing that really helped me and I still do is it, this is a bit of an overhang from corporate. In a, a big company, you'll always have a corporate structure. You'll always have the like little photos of people's faces. You have the CEO, the CMO, the CTO, and then underneath you'll have like the directors of blah, blah, blah. And you'll sort of have all the departments, like every role that could exist in that business is covered off. So you can have this picture of if this goes wrong, go to that person. If this goes wrong, go to that person. The hilarious thing in your own business is you wear all of those hats, but I still- (laughs) You're in every photo. (laughs) You're in every photo. But from day one, I will print out that corporate structure and put my name under everything. Because that way you don't miss anything. Nothing falls through the gaps. You realize that, yes, I'm doing 800 different roles, but if I didn't have that big picture of what the business needs were, I could forget that there is a department of tech or there is a department of insurance. Like you could so easily forget to even Mm. do that role at all that your business loses out. And then it's also when you do get to another big question that comes up is who should your first hire be? When you're expanding, like what area do you even get someone to help you in? Because there's 85 areas. If you don't have a corporate structure that's showing you what departments you're actually doing in your day, then how do you know what you're going to outsource? You sort of like always need an all-rounder because you're just being an all-rounder all the time. Whereas if you've divided into, well, today I was mostly the CMO. Today was mostly marketing. Um, Yesterday was mainly sales. You can sort of balance up like actually the department of sales is the one I could just palm off tomorrow. Mm. Like it helps you make decisions if you've got it all laid out and then slowly, slowly you rub out your name under each thing and like replace it with other people. And that's how I found those growth decisions a lot more easy because I'd drawn it all up in like a diagram. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm very, it's, it's, it's nice to see something out on paper like that. And it really helps once again, unscramble your thoughts and unscramble your plans because like you say, when you're doing, you know, marketing and you've got content to make or you've got to get out those marketing emails, it can feel so, so overwhelming. 
But then if you write it all down and just go, oh, okay, I've only actually got half an hour of packing and 20 minutes of online, you know, website editing to do. And yeah, and palm off what you can to outsource what you can to someone that, you know, is happy to do that. And it's it's exciting hearing that because I'm not obviously at that point where I'm able to bring someone on board with me, but I love the idea of that. I love thinking that that's a possibility in the future and having that goal in mind is really, really nice and being able to put that on paper and see exactly where I would need that help and what would what would help me be, yeah, less overwhelmed by wearing all those hats. <laughs> mm. And I think it also helps you identify like during the day, because you're switching so seamlessly between wearing different hats, you often don't really identify that you're changing because you're just doing your to-do list. You're just kind of responding to what you need to do. So then it's really hard to identify when someone asks you when it's time to, like when you really do need help because you can't do anything else. You can't grow anymore on your own. Mm. It's really hard to know which bits you like and which bits you don't like because you've never really acknowledged that you're swapping roles at all. So you're like, well, I kind of like all of it and I kind of hate all of it. So I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) But if you've got at least sort of a vague list of the departments in your business, like marketing, sales, tech, like, you know what I mean? Once you've divided it all out, you can kind of, even subconsciously, you know, okay, this morning was marketing. I love marketing. Um, This afternoon was more sales. I hate sales. So you can kind of figure out what parts you like and what parts you don't so that you can start to carve out Mm. bits that you could get even a part-timer or a contractor to do. Like some people hate social media and but they don't really know that they've, they're like consistently not liking that area because they haven't noticed that they're swapping into one area or another of the business. So I feel like that division of roles is really important. Do you think that also helps with mm. scaling up a business by looking at exactly, you know, while, while still keeping a good balance between keeping an open mind and having a bit of a structure to move forward with into the future, with, with that, with dividing the roles, mm. what else do you think helps sort of expand, you know, when you're feeling a bit stagnant and you think, mm. I know where my business could be, I don't really know what the next step is, what would be your advice for that? That is such a good question. And I think that's probably where that corporate structure thing helped me the most. It was initially started more as a time management thing for me, but then it became a scale-up tool of basically looking at all those areas and departments and like just noticing which ones are overflowing. Like which ones are so busy that I'm spending all my time on that and ignoring everything else? Or which are the ones that just consistently are not getting the attention that they need? Or, you know, uh, is marketing going amazingly, but sales are lagging that month? Like if we had our busiest month of posting and sharing and partnerships and announcements and the slowest month of sales, then like, why is that happening? Like Mm. there's obviously some kind of misallocation of time and effort and energy. So I feel like unless you've kind of written that down, maybe not visually, if you're not a visual learner, you maybe don't need to do it as a chart, but unless you're on top of that, people often have that problem of like, okay, I really need to scale up because you can constantly feel you're not getting everything done, but they don't know which direction because they're like, well, they've never divided it. And then, you know, comes the next problem of, okay, well, we'll get an investor because you can always use more money. But so many businesses that I've seen, they get money and they're like, well, what do I do with it? The main way I think is like, well, what pressure points are the most demanding right now? And you can't, again, unless you've thought about what roles you're doing at which time, you can't actually identify which direction. Like there's one thing to scale your business outwards, but like towards what? Is it towards sales? Is it like more products? Is it more staff for more sales of the existing products? 
Is it Australia to New Zealand or Australia to the US or is it only Australia but 20 products instead of 10? Like there's so many different choices that, that you can make. Yeah, yeah. And like someone giving you money doesn't tell you which of those you should choose. You can only really do sort of one step at a time. You can't do, you know, I think that's the other uh, the other mistake people make is they go, well, we're going to launch in America and launch 25 new products. <laughs> And you're like, well, you can't do both of those things at the same time with one staff member. Like, that's just not going to happen. So, yeah, in terms of, like, narrowing your focus and being a little bit clearer on, like, we need help in all areas, but maybe sales needs it the most. Mm -hmm. That's where I think that exercise helps you. I feel like some people can scale up in certain ways. Like, it depends on what you personally enjoy doing the most. If you're really good at certain parts and you really dislike other parts... For us, the nature of our business dictated that we were packing ourselves, for example, at the beginning. I actually loved packing. It was so therapeutic to do. Like, how fun is it? And then there comes to a point where you're like, so mindful, but you could fall into the tendency to just you keep packing because you're like, well, it's saving me money, but, and I really enjoy it. So I'm just going to keep doing this. Yeah. But it's also like, it stops you doing anything else. Mm. You can't do any product development. You can't do anything else. If you're spending all your time packing, which someone else can easily do, you no one can do the stuff that you can do. Like you get taken away from those things. So yeah, I think that's, I'm like going off on a rambly tangent now, but I think um, in the scale up process, it is really important to make a list of priorities of which area needs the most help and do them in order rather than just more money, more products, more locations, mm. everything at once. I am going to go home and draw a little family tree of responsibilities in my business and figure out which ones need attention. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> literally like writing a little list of, oh, what do I need to do? I Because just mm. seeing that visually too, you say, you know, some people don't learn like that, but having a chart, how good, how good is visualisation and just picturing things like that, having mm. it on paper because it's, and, and it's so interesting too, like I've just learned a lot from even what you've just said in terms of, analyzing the business and going, well, where to next, but not exactly where to next. How am I using my time and am I prioritizing it right? Mm. Because I often think, okay, I need to get, you know, my next five designs ready, but it might not actually be that. I might need to do more marketing and more research in terms of getting some feedback. What do people actually want to see? Like I know what I think will be good mm. when it comes out, but if I'm spending all that time creating something and then find out after, oh, no one really likes that. It's not, once again, like you said mm. before, it's not like you're wasting time, but it could have been, yeah, a step closer to um, the right direction, I guess. And having it written down, I think is so good. I'd, I need to go home and just use half a book to just journal out everything with the business, I think. <laughs> and I think there is also when you haven't written it down and you aren't, you haven't done that full analysis of where your priorities are, it's really easy to just fall into the trap of, well, the only way to scale up is more products. Yeah. Like the only way is new ranges. The only way is novelty. The only way is like five new products and three new colours and eight new sizes or, mm. you know, whatever it is. And that is, I think, sometimes a step that could take up a lot of resources where you could with much less effort and much more success, maybe just look at, you know, a hundred percent more money in Facebook advertising in the existing range. Mm. Like you don't know that you couldn't triple your business in picking one hero mm. set that, you know, if you look at the figures, one bikini selling a thousand times more than the other ones, like instead of doing a whole new range, you could just 
do that one but in different colours. Like mm. I feel like there's so many different ways to scale and people forget that it's not just more new stuff all the time. Yeah, you get into the habit of doing things the way you've always done them and without thinking about why you're doing it that way. It's just a habit. Yeah, mm. and you do in a world on social media where like newness seems like the right thing to do all the time. It's not necessarily. Mm. Sometimes you reinvent something that's already doing well or could be doing better. And it is really hard. It's like, well, where do I put my resources? Because you can't be testing everything all at once. But yeah, I think just think a little bit more. There's that that whole bigger is better and more is better thing is the biggest danger and risk in scale up, I think. Mm. Most of the time when we've just automatically applied that, it's been to our detriment and we've usually scaled back because we've done it too quickly. It's distracted us from the original hero. Um, we've, you know, you, you make a lot less money also yeah. when you first scale. Like even on a profitability thing, the bigger you get, sometimes the less you take home. So it has to be a very tailored approach to your specific business. Yeah. It's hard because you can research as much as you want and you can ask, you know, your community what they're looking for. But being able to tailor it to your business is so important. And like when I want to create pieces that it's, you know, sustainable, obviously, and I want them to be pieces that are loved and that are timeless. I don't want to bring out, you know, the next best thing that's the next best thing until something new and greater comes out. And with the socials and with the saturation of so many markets Mm. at the moment, there's, you can definitely get that sort of imposter syndrome and worry that your creativity isn't individual, even though it's come from your mind. Do you ever struggle with that, with worrying if you're, I guess not different, but showing exactly what is on your mind and is in your passions when you create your products. Do you worry that someone is doing the same thing? Always. We had the most amazing, unique situation with Match Made In at the beginning where we were pretty much the only market entrant in that space, in the health food space anyway. It had been around for centuries, but yeah, we had this glory year where mm. just no one else really had done the sort of online model or the cafe serving model with like cool logos and funny puns, like no one else really did it. So I didn't have that as much in the first year, but then suddenly there were like 40 other competitors in the market all at once in the second year. Oh, wow. Once everyone realized the barriers to entry were low, suddenly there were like 85 different mattress companies and then 100 and then 200. And yeah, that really set in of like, well, what is different about us? Mm. Like it's pretty... It's like a staple powder. I mean, there's lots of variations between them, but the average consumer doesn't know that yeah. and probably doesn't care. So even if we tried to explain it to you, they're probably not going to listen. Mm. Our price point was higher. I was like, How, are they even listening about why it's higher? Mm. Do they care about organic? Like, absolutely. That was so much of my thoughts. And then bigger companies, like, you know, at the um, what I thought would be the end of our business was when the first big pharma company came out with their own matcha. And that was, I think it was Blackmore's. I was like, oh my God, it's all over. It's all over. I've ridden the wave and now it's got to the mainstream. And yeah, and now I literally would have, if I listened to my first instincts, I would have just packed up and closed it because I'm like, it's better to like decide to fail rather than to let it fizzle and just slowly fail. Like that's how strong that comparison gets. But you have to realise like there's, always someone out there looking for exactly what you have. Nobody is reinventing the wheel. It is so rare in this day and age that you create something brand new and you don't have to. You just have to create something that's slightly different to what everyone else is doing. Like 
I'd forgotten that there are so many people out there who, as soon as something is a mass brand, they don't want it. They will Mm. actively go away from the mass-produced brand because boutique is their vibe. And that is a very profitable market to tap into. I mean, the country's pretty big. The world is pretty big. You can tap into international markets. Some Australian businesses barely sell in Australia. They're mostly targeted to other markets. There'll always be some niche that you can fall into that you can usually build to make a living out of. Mm. And it doesn't have to be the way that you think it is. Because again, I thought bigger is better. I've got to get into the supermarkets and I've got to sit next to Blackmores on the shelf. When we did sort of start to go down that pathway, our very loyal main target market hated it. Mm. They were like, ew, you've always been boutique. You've always been those smaller stores, cafes. You've always had that family business story. Like, why are you doing this mass market churning out a million products thing? And I was like, yeah, why am I doing that? And it was only because I thought that's what you did next and because I I saw Blackmores and it made me forget everything about why we were different. I just went, oh, I should do what they're doing. Comparison is is legitimately the thief of joy. Like it just ruins. Um, another quote I love is, the fastest way to ruin something special is to compare it to something else. And it's so true. Yeah. Like when you're trying to yeah. be the the best and, and someone chooses your product over, you know, one of those big companies, it's so easy to go, oh, well, yeah, I need to match them. I need to do exactly what they're doing. And you're so right. Like your story and the uniqueness of the brand is so much more important. And that is why people flock to it, not because it has that big label on it from the big companies. And that's, you, yeah, keeping that is so important. And also from a personal enjoyment perspective, this comes back to that CZA philosophy, is like, what do you want to do day to day? What do you want your life to look like? Mm. And if I look at becoming a major supplier to a major retailer, we would have needed a factory. I would have been in the factory all the time. I would never have been out in the community. I couldn't have been part of the community building. I would have had no people facing time. It would have been all pitches and like tables Mm. and financial reviews and forecasting and everything I left my legal career for. But because I was so blinded by like more is better, I was like, no, that's what I should do. But what I love about or what I loved at the time about running Matcha Maiden was that I didn't need an office. I didn't need a factory. We outsourced everything. We could work from anywhere. Mm. I worked with my husband. We could work from home. We had a cafe. We could go to LA for a month and see our suppliers over there. Like we would have lost everything that we loved about our lifestyle that we got from the business. And it also would have been less profitable. Like our revenue would have gone up. I think it was been times five just on the first purchase order, which on paper looks amazing. We would have won all these awards. I could have been amazing. But day to day, I would have hated my life. And okay, maybe not hated my life. That's very ungrateful. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like I was moving further away from what I had originally. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And But why was I chasing it so hard then? Like I'd just fallen back into that same mentality that I started with. So I think you've really got to catch yourself. Mm sometimes with that next step choice. Exactly (laughs) like the puzzle pieces, as you said earlier. Like you might, you know, that five times revenue, you're looking at a gorgeous picture on the wall and then you're going, oh, you know what? It doesn't actually look that good. (laughs) Might take the stairs, you know, a little (laughs) stair analogy. Yeah, it's just, it's so funny what you think um, at the start and and along the journey, what you think is going to be the right thing. And then, yeah, looking at Exactly what you're doing each day, getting getting to spend time with your pup. <laughs> That's what you want. <laughs> and you wouldn't have you wouldn't have been totally, able to do that if totally. you had gone gone up there with Blackmores. 
Pop would be even more upset about you not being home. So upset. And it probably would have failed because once we entered that market, they were our competitor. Mm. When we were a boutique brand, we weren't really trying to get the same customers. As soon as we would have competed with them to be in that mass market, it just wouldn't have worked. So it's even more like just stick to, like find the thing that makes you unique and stick to it and trust that the people, like obviously be critical enough and objective enough that if it really isn't working and your numbers are showing that, that maybe you can tweak and be adaptable. But if it is working, then don't try and break it and remake it completely. Sarah, I've I've been a longtime follower of you and part of your online community. <gasps> and I love you. I found you through Ellen Road Jewellery, um, which you're wearing today. I'm wearing it today yes! too. And I love oh them. Oh, my gosh. And I wanted to ask you about how you built a community that care about what you're doing so much and are so interested in what you're doing every day? Because I feel like every week you recommend something, I buy it just because you've told me to. <laughs> I love that so much. And how did, so you, kind of you. how did you convince me to do that? <laughs> <laughs> Mind control. <laughs> oh, that's really kind of you. And it's still, whenever I meet someone who has been following for a while, like the privilege is never lost on me. It's just such a, even like you keep saying, Elle, it's just a small community, but like really any community that you've created is amazing. Mm. It is so cool that you have people that care what you do and are invested in your story. And I think over time, the biggest thing is that you build a relationship with them that isn't just around the thing you're trying to sell them. Like you get very bogged down in, and this comes back to that whole like perfection question as well. You get very bogged down in like, what is matcha? How am I trying to explain it to them? What do they need to know about its health benefits? And it is really overwhelming to decide what to tell your community when you know they've got like a one second attention span. Mm. Social media is so fleeting. Like I want to tell them 10 benefits. They're very scientific words, but I only, <laughs> I only can tell them one thing at a time. And like how often do I tell them? What time of the day do I tell them? It's It's hard. It's really, really hard. But I think one thing we've done consistently and mainly by accident was just talking to people like they were people, mm. not like they were a matcha consumer mm -hmm. because most people who were buying matcha were also buying turmeric or were also going to the gym or were also going to work. Like they have other interests and I think you get very bogged down on, oh, well, while I've got your two seconds of attention, I'm only going to throw matcha facts at mm. you. Whereas we use some of our posts to tell a bit of our backstory. We've always put the story first just because we were talking about it. Because it was really fresh and I had just left my job, I kind of talked a little bit about that. Yeah. And I think showing a bit of yourself, sometimes people um, actually put a name to who their, who their main customers are. Mm. Like they say, there's a, a Beryl who's in this age group. There's, you know, a Matthew who's the like new dad. Like you kind of actually give them personalities and you talk to your audience as if you're talking to that group of people. And just, yeah, being realistic that they don't want to only hear about matcha. Mm. Like even if they're into matcha, they don't really want to only hear about matcha. So it's okay if you put a meme up on your page because <laughs> they've probably got a sense of humor. It's okay if you talk about self-doubt on that page. Like there's a limit to how unprofessional you can seem. Like, you don't want to seem too not together. But I think what's, yeah, what gets people's interest is when you do talk to them outside of what they're there for mm. because then, you know, I don't know. It just feels like you recognise it. I feel anyway, like, that they recognise I'm a human being that has other interests as well, that I find things funny, that the brand is not a person, but you want to make it have a personality as much as it can. Mm. So have a bit of sass. 
put some jokes, speckle some jokes in. Um, Elle, your post that you did a couple of posts ago, the TikTok trend about me worrying today that I didn't make that many sales, but then showing a baby photo of you like, but we did all this amazing stuff. We started a business and we've got customers who are strangers. Like that shows that there's a personal side of the business. There's someone behind it who's worried about not making enough sales, but who's also was a child never dreaming that they could be here. So that's yeah. really cool. Yeah. It's so crazy yeah. too. Like as soon and as I did that stuff, I was like, oh, I feel a bit vulnerable. But the amount of people that said to me, hey, I really, hard. really loved that. Like do that more, jump on there. You know, so when I was in my work break and in my work uniform, I did one and everyone's like, oh, can you do this a bit more? And I was like, oh, you know what? I'll just do them. I'll get them out there because when you do it, when you think about it, you start thinking about it too much and you watch it back and you hear your voice oh, and, yeah. oh, it just goes. But these people are here because they chose to be here. At the end of the day, if they find me annoying or repetitive or they don't think that I'm funny, they can, you know, click unfollow at the end of the day. They'll tell you, babe. <laughs> They'll tell you. You'll you'll know. <laughs> it's pretty instant. So I feel like it definitely is. It's letting them into a little bit of you. It's letting them see a little. And, like, people who hate putting their face on camera. You don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be your face on camera either. It can just be a bit of your personality and captions. It can be, I think the main thing is setting a tone for your interactions. You've got a really limited time where they're giving you your attention, but don't think that they're so silly or don't trust them so little that they can't hear something else from you and still like your product. Mm. Um, I feel like picking in swimwear, like that's got so many aspects. That's got people who love summer. You could make jokes about the weather. You could like put mango smoothie recipes. Like there's mm. pina coladas. Like there's so many aspects that are, yeah, associated with swimwear that isn't just, and I don't know about you guys, but also use yourself as market research. Like I look at pages that are just product and like it's not, what are you giving me here? Mm. You're showing me product. I've come here because of the product. I already know that they're bathers. Yeah. Like, I can go to the website to see exactly what sizes and fabrics. Like I can learn a bit on socials, but like be funny. Like make me have a reason to come back for this page other than to look at, yeah, have some personality. And I feel like all our businesses have always been a little bit like inappropriate, <laughs> not like badly, but like very professional, but still have always had like like a pun. And then like we've been a bit silly. Yeah. We've used words like labeling your community as well makes them feel like you're talking to them in a, in a really intimate way. So we called it the community <laughs> because tea and like yay. <gasps> Sees the yay is the yayborhood. Like even if you're speaking to five people in that yayborhood, those five people forever were like, oh, we're in the yayborhood. <laughs> like we're in something. So give it a name. Like call it out. Use your language to create the feeling that they belong to something and then they'll come back. Mm. Elle, you should call your community drifters. Drifters! And, like, just use puns with L in it. Like, mm. you know, out in the elements. <gasps> like, I'm in my element when you're, like, being you. Like, when you're doing a silly TikTok. <laughs> I was with one of my you good know? mates the other day and she said the same. She's like, you know how YouTubers always have a name? And I was like, sunshines is something I'd say, but I. that's so funny that you, both of you ladies came up with something good because I'm like, I don't know what to say to them. Beach babes. <laughs> I didn't want to make people feel, because you want to group everyone together, but in a positive way without them feeling, you know, too labelled, you know, I don't want to say beach babes mm. and guys to watch it and mm. be like, oh, I want to be a beach babe. <laughs> but yeah, I like that, drifters. But, you know, you could even do things like when you make jokes about um, you know how like there's so many funny memes about getting older and how like on a Friday night instead of being out late you're 
you know, in your pyjamas by 9pm. You could be like, you know, as <laughs> advice from your elder, <laughs> like just funny things like that, like using your name because then also people get that L is your name mm. and that's why it's Ella Drift. Like reinforcing the personal side of your business is definitely what's helped us build community. And like you say, like honestly the scariest thing that can happen is people go, oh, that was a bit bit cringe or a bit awkward. I don't know about seeing that much of you. And you go, okay, we'll wind it back. <laughs> yeah, like it's fine. It's instantaneous and you can delete it. It's fine. We're not the Kardashians. It's not going to be screenshotted everywhere on people's phones forever. <laughs> oh, you're pretty up there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> no, it's so true, though. Oh, and like once you put oh. yourself out there being silly as well, it's like, well, who, who can make those judgments now? I'm out there. I'm, I'm yeah. out in the world. Yeah. You know, there's no, yeah, you're always your own worst critic. And don't you appreciate it too? Like if a business has had a really big mess up and they show a bit of their vulnerability, like they call it straight away, they put it on social, they don't ignore and go totally radio silent about it and then four days later suddenly they're back online mm-hmm. and they have this polished PR message. I really appreciate it when a business is like, oh, my God, tech issues. Mm. Like, everyone in the world understands tech issues. Like, just talk oh, yeah. to them like they're people and be vulnerable and show a bit of yourself. When they do talk about it, I'm yeah. so sorry, guys. I really didn't didn't want this to happen. We just didn't know there was going to be so much side activity. And you can see, like, you can see it in the way they speak to you. Like, you can see it in their eyes. They genuinely care and they're, they're sorry. And it's so easy to, not that I've ever been mad at someone for something like that, but it would be so easy to forgive someone and, like you say, remember, oh, there's a human there doing all that hard work for this this wonderful brand that I love. And it's really special to remember that, yeah, there's always going to be mistakes that happen. And like you say, especially with tech, especially with tech. <laughs> well, thank you so much to both of you for this wonderful conversation. I knew you two would get along well. You're both just rays of sunshine. So I feel like I've barely <laughs> spoken at all, but I've loved listening to both of you. So thank you so much for both coming in. And I think we say this at the end of every episode now, but I think we should all swap numbers and continue to be part of that mentor army moving forward. I will be your elder, Elle. (laughs) I would love that. Oh, yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I want puppy photos of Paul. (laughs) Oh, my God, yes, prepare. Prepare for the onslaught. This podcast is a listener production hosted by me, Mim Risby, and made in partnership with the Accelerator for Enterprising Women. Producer is Kelsey Menzies, audio by Kelly Fulston, and executive producer is Todd Stevens. Listener.